On January 20th, 2017, Donald Trump was inaugurated as president. In just two years since announcing his candidacy, he went from a laughable candidate, one that no one thought could win, to one that the incumbent President Obama called a danger to democracy. Despite being behind in a number of pre-election polls, Trump received 46.1% of the popular vote, which was enough to win the election. In this episode, I attempt to expose the psychological factors behind Donald Trump's victory. I'll detail how he used certain behavioural science principles to dominate the news cycle, how he used controversy to polarise many, but win the hearts and minds of others. And I'll explain how repeated exposure to Trump's campaign helped win the vote in vital swing states. All of that coming up, but first, here's another podcast I'd recommend. Success Story, hosted by Scott D. Clary, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features Q&A sessions with successful business leaders, keynote presentations, and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups, and entrepreneurship. Back in December last year, Scott did an episode with marketing legend Seth Godin on how to hire well, which I think is well worth tuning into. So listen to Success Story wherever you get your podcasts. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. That's a saying attributed to Oscar Wilde. He is believed to have made this remark in his play Lady Windermere's Fan, which was first performed in 1892. In the play, one of the characters, Lord Darlington, makes this statement as part of a conversation about the importance of being noticed and talked about in society. Now, this saying might be over 130 years old, but the basic psychological principle behind it has been notable for millennia. This principle is known as the mere exposure effect. Simply put, the mere exposure effect shows how people develop a preference for things simply because we are familiar with them. This means that the more often we are exposed to something, the more likely we are to favour it. I'll give a few examples that I'm sure you've experienced. If you hear a song on the radio multiple times, then you are simply more likely to enjoy it and want to hear it again. If you see a brand of cereal being advertised repeatedly, then you're more likely to pick it up if it's on offer. And if you see a political candidate in the news multiple times, you're just more likely to support that candidate. This is because repeated exposure to a candidate's name and message just makes us more familiar with that name and message, and thus, because it's more familiar, it will become more likeable, in some cases at least. We are drawn to things simply because we are familiar with them, and repeat exposure can have a powerful influence on our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviours. One of the earliest studies on the mere exposure effect was conducted by Robert Zionks in 1968. In his study, Zionks showed participants a series of written Chinese characters and measured their emotional reactions to each character. Now, I should mention, this was conducted in Michigan with US students, so they didn't know what the Chinese characters meant, they couldn't read them, and they should naturally have no preference for one character over another. The researcher found that participants who were exposed to some characters more frequently had more positive emotional reactions to those characters compared to participants who were exposed to the to the same characters just less frequently. 
Simply put, the more they saw a Chinese character, the more they liked it, even though they had no reason to. They had no understanding of what that character meant. This study provided some of the first evidence for the mere exposure effect. And this effect isn't only found in Michigan students, it's been demonstrated across different cultures and even different species. One experiment sought to test if the mere exposure effect was visible in fertile chicken eggs. Musical tones of two different frequencies were played to two different groups of chicks while they were still unhatched. Once hatched, each tone was played to the chicks again, and each set of chicks were consistently drawn to the tone they had been played while still unhatched in their eggs. As you can imagine, if the mere exposure effect works with characters and musical tones, then it's likely to work with faces too. A different study, conducted by Bornstein and D'Agostino, exposed participants to a small series of photographs of faces, say 20 or 30 faces, in a brief period of time. Then, later on in the experiment, when they were presented with 300 faces, the participants were asked to choose which faces they liked. Turns out, participants were more likely to choose the faces they had seen before as their favourites. The researchers repeated the study with a control group who were not exposed to any faces beforehand, and this group showed no preference for, for those faces. So clearly, a little bit of mere exposure can change our perception and our decisions. Now, I should mention that there are some caveats. Bornstein conducted more studies in the 1980s that found how after a long period of exposure, say 10, 20 times of repeated exposure, the amount we like something can decrease. For example, if you eat the same meal time and time again, you will eventually get bored of it. If you listen to the same song time and time and time again, you will eventually get bored of it. And that's why it's called the mere exposure effect and not the endless exposure effect. Bornstein also found how a delay between exposure and the measurement of liking actually tends to increase the strength of the effect. So, you know, don't ask someone if they enjoyed your, your concert right after, maybe ask them the next day, for example. And there was even one part of his experiments that showed that exposure to people we initially dislike may make us dislike them even more. Nevertheless, the mere exposure effect clearly affects how our decision-making works in quite notable ways. So, for example, many stock traders tend to invest in securities of domestic companies merely because they are more familiar with them, even though international companies often offer similar or even better alternatives. The mere exposure effect can also skew the result of journal ranking surveys. So these are surveys sent out to professors asked to rank journals based on their trustworthiness, their quality, that sort of thing. In some surveys, academics who had previously published or completed reviews for a particular journal tend to rate that journal much higher than those who have not been exposed to the journal previously. Now, I guess there's a bit of consistency bias here, but again, the results are clear. Exposure can lead to liking. And of course, as you can imagine, the effect is visible in politics as well. Rudiger Pohl conducted a statistical analysis of voting patterns in 2004 and found that the exposure a candidate gets has a very strong effect on the number of votes they receive, despite the popularity of their policies. So, you know, think about that for a second. The mere exposure effect will boost the number of views a candidate gets, regardless of their policies. Now, you can see how this principle can have a damaging impact on our elections. If we assume this holds true for most elections, the winner won't be the one with the most popular policies, 
They'll be the one that captures the most exposure. And that there, that's essentially what Trump did. He captured attention and won people over with mere exposure. Now, I want to caveat at this stage of the episode that I will not be talking about what Trump has said. I won't be mentioning his policies and I won't be mentioning his work. Frankly, I think he's an abhorrent human being who has done untold damage to the states and further afield. And I'm also aware of how exposure can influence people. So I won't bring any more exposure to Trump's views. I just don't think it's helpful. But that's okay, because Trump is hardly the first person to utilize this principle to win the hearts and minds of people. Many have achieved the same feats beforehand, and most of them without the world reaching platforms like Twitter and the 24-hour news cycle. Because of this, I'd argue that these historical people are probably far more successful than modern-day attention grabbers. Achieving success with mere exposure was much harder before mass market media came along. But that is exactly what P.T. Barnum achieved. Barnum, known today as the world's greatest showman, was a businessman and an entertainer who captured the attention of the world back in the 1800s. He is remembered for his extravagant and elaborate shows that include genuine circus innovations at the time, things like acrobats, tightrope walkers, and exotic animals. He was also a successful entrepreneur, and surprise, surprise, a successful politician as well. I guess his ultimate achievement was helping to popularise the concept of the modern circus. So, how did he make his circus so popular? And how did he make it so popular that it changed the course of history for the genre? Well, partly at least, through mere exposure. See, Barnum was referred to as the Shakespeare of advertising by Yale professor Phelps in the 1930s. And that is partly because his ads, they were brilliant, they were really good ads, they were very convincing, but also because he advertised a lot. He knew the power of exposure and wanted as much of it as possible. However, just like Trump, Barnum knew that all exposure was not equal some exposure was better than others. Simply whacking up an ad and saying the circus is coming wasn't enough for Barnum. He knew he could get more bang for his buck if he created some controversy, some intrigue that would polarise opinions and get people talking. One of the first examples of this was when Barnum introduced his inverted horse at his museum. So this is what he called an inverted horse, and he called it a, a natural anomaly. He said it had its head and tail in the reversed position. Now, understandably, this ad caused debate and thousands of people paid to see the horse. Thing is, when they saw the horse, they were disappointed. It was simply a normal horse tethered by its tail rather than its head. He repeated this trick with his rhinos, which he advertised as unicorns. And time and time again, Barnum created a story out of the ordinary. When Barnum wanted to get people out of a crowded exhibit, he would erect a sign proclaiming this way to egress. This got people excited, not knowing what it meant. Customers raced towards the door, expecting to see something exotic, except Barnum placed the sign over the exit door. Punters found themselves outside the show and had to pay to get back in. Here's another example. When one of Barnum's competitors brought a genuine white elephant from Thailand, Barnum got worried. He couldn't compete with that. But rather than concede defeat, in Trumpian manner, he deceived the public again, whitewashing one of his grey elephants white, meaning the genuine white elephant actually lost its appeal. Like Trump, Barnum was relentless in his desire to capture attention, coming up with any message or event that could just get people talking. 
In the 1840s, thousands of people lined up to see the latest Barnum discovery. He was advertising a mermaid from Fiji. He described it as a sight to dream of, a bare-breasted, fish-tailed enchantress. After paying to get in, all his customers saw was the head of a monkey crudely sewn onto the body of a fish. Now, Barnum knew these types of tricks would cause controversy. They would get people talking. And he knew that that would just increase his exposure and boost his popularity. And just like Trump, he knew how important it was to associate himself with that exposure. His ads contained a portrait of him on the ad. Often in the largest font on the ad, it would simply read, I am coming. He became a household name because of it. And Barnum knew how to get all this exposure way before the days of social media. According to James Twitchwell's brilliant book, 20 Ads That Shook the World, two weeks before Barnum's circus came to town, Barnum would send an advertising coach down the rails. Plastered all around this advertising coach was his portrait, surrounded by exotic animals and circus acts. Townspeople were invited to tour the coach to see everything inside and marvel at all the things he was going to bring in the circus in a couple of weeks. And this early exposure just boosted his liking and triggered conversation. A crowd was being drawn, word of mouth was starting and hype was growing. Now, this did not come cheap. The expense of this advertising was recorded to be one third of all the circus expenses. That was around $100,000 a year back then, uh, which really, you know, it's a lot of money for the 1870s, the equivalent to around $15 million today. According to Twitchwell, Barnum was probably the first ad man to understand this bizarre ratio of spending money on advertising to actually increase revenues. He was the first entrepreneur who truly understood that spending money to stay in the news was money well spent, even if that news wasn't always good news. Because of course, much of the news about Barnum was how he was a con man, how he lied to the public. Many were especially critical of his controversial exhibition of Joyce Heath, a woman who Barnum claimed to be 161 years old. She wasn't. She was in fact a 70-year-old slave who was blind and almost completely paralysed. These hoaxes were rightly seen as dishonest and deceitful, but they still captured attention. And just like Trump today, that attention, regardless of whether it's positive or negative, can be used to influence decisions. But why would controversy capture attention? Why do hoaxes work? And why are people like Trump and Barnum often incentivized to lie? In a bit, we'll cover the psychology behind controversy, but first, here's a quick 60-second break. As many of you know, I have just quit my job to go full-time on Nudge, but prior to that, I spent my career working in startups. And startups aren't easy. It's long hours, small teams, tiny budgets. It makes marketing hard work, but it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing and support all together. So you can increase your leads, you can fast-track your deals, smooth out support and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. HubSpot also offer discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform and not the type of discounts that barely make a dent. So if you're ready to boost your marketing without breaking the bank, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit hubspot.com startups. 
Now, I think it seems like every day there is a new scandal or outrage lighting up our news cycle or our social media feeds. But why do these contentious topics capture our attention and quickly spread across the internet? Is it because we're drawn to drama and conflict? Or is there some deeper psychological reason behind our fascination with controversy? Now, before diving in, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Pete Judo and his brilliant YouTube channel. His video on the psychology behind controversy was the main source that I used for this section. So do go and watch that at the end if you want to learn more. I've linked to it in the show notes. So Pete researched the studies behind controversy and shared that controversial topics catch attention due to two reasons. The first is interest. See, typically, a controversial topic will be naturally interesting. It'll go against the status quo or suggest something novel or differentiated. Most controversial topics like you know, gun control, death penalty, flat earthers and climate change deniers, they have something fundamentally interesting behind the controversy. How could someone think the world is flat, we wonder? How do they explain time zones? How do they explain tides? How do they explain pictures taken from space? Stating the obvious, factual, accepted view that the world is round just isn't as interesting as the alternative. There's, there's sort of no denying that. But not only is controversy interesting, it should also spark discomfort. See, interest alone isn't enough to cause controversy. To cause controversy, you need to feel a little bit of discomfort with that view. Take climate change deniers. We're sort of interested, so to speak, in this view because it obviously goes against what we're used to hearing, but it also makes us very uncomfortable. We worry about people having these views. We think those views are damaging and we think they might stop us from making tangible change. Interest and discomfort are what makes something controversial and getting the right mix of both is usually all that's needed to capture attention. This discomfort usually means that controversial topics happen to be negative. They're views that we know we're not supposed to support. But this only makes them more alluring. Alongside having a preference to things that we're highly exposed to, we also have a natural bias towards negativity. This is known as the negativity bias. A study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology found that people tend to dwell on negative events more than positive ones, and that negative events have a greater impact on our overall well-being and happiness. You know, if you go into a job interview and you get one question wrong or you're not happy about how you answer it, that'll be the thing you dwell on rather than all the questions that you answered really well. Other studies have found similar results and suggest that the negativity bias has evolutionary roots, as it might have helped our ancestors avoid danger and survive the wild. A Cambridge University paper called Differences in the Negativity Bias Underlie Variations in Political Ideology, well this paper found that this bias for negativity has a strong impact on our voting decisions. The researchers found that in an election, voters are more likely to cast their vote for a candidate based on negative information about their opponent as opposed to their candidate's personal merits. I'm sure a lot of this is making people reflect on the Trump-Hillary Clinton election. Negativity is also more persuasive. A recent paper by Lafreniere, Moore and Fisher found that customer reviews are also more persuasive when they contain a bit of negative profanity. Soft swear words like damn communicate more intensity than standard adverbs like very. So saying this coffee is damn good is simply more persuasive than saying it's very good. 
Taboo words, and I'll admit, damn isn't really a taboo word, but you can imagine more taboo words like it. Well, these types of words, they are socially risky and they are viewed as negative words, but that negativity captures attention and makes the reviewer more persuasive. So the researchers, they analysed 300,000 reviews from Amazon and Yelp, and in their 2022 study, they found that reviews with a small amount of profanity actually received more helpful upvotes than other non-profanity reviews. So people were upvoting these reviews more than other ones. So negativity seems to capture our thoughts, it makes our reviews more believable, and of course, it also captures the minds of voters. All in all, controversy captures attention, even controversy that is widely disagreed with. And this is arguably how both Trump and Barnum grew their popularity. Both shared controversial points at an unprecedented scale, generating unprecedented level of exposure. This exposure only made the two more memorable, more popular, and in some cases more likeable. And for something like an election where the choice is between just two candidates, that exposure, well that alone, can be enough to win the election. For me, the takeaway here is, I think, a scary one. We're entering a world where exposure is easier than ever to get. Individuals like Andrew Tate, Alex Jones, Jordan Peterson, and even Kanye West can use social networks to capture attention. And they know what you've just learned, that sharing negative, controversial views will only boost their popularity regardless of how people view them. Yet these views create a scary flywheel. More views means more promotion from algorithms. TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, all these platforms are built to promote what people pay attention to. And these controversial views are just bound to capture attention because of our psychology. But then something else happens. With more attention and more awareness, these controversial individuals continue to benefit. They then benefit from social proof. The idea that their views must be relevant because so many people are listening to them, watching them, reading about them. And they benefit, again, from the halo effect. The idea that they must have other good qualities if they have all this popularity. We're living in a world where capturing attention doesn't require an extraordinary ad budget like it did for Barnum. It just requires sharing some dodgy views for long enough on social for people to start paying attention. It's a scary prospect that only looks set to get worse. Now this felt like a dark note to end on, so before signing off, I thought I'd share one more mere exposure example. Arguably, it's a controversial one, so you'll definitely want to hear it. It's from Dave Trott's brilliant book, Creative Blindness. Now, as many of you know, in 2003, America started a war with Iraq. Of course, part of the war was due to the supposed weapons of mass destructions that were never found. But more specifically, they also went to war with Saddam Hussein and his regime. They wanted to capture and kill his sons, his henchmen, his entire network. In the view of many Americans, it was these people who were the real villains in the war. These people were causing terror through mass murder and a brutal dictatorship. So the real job, as much as fighting the Iraqi army, was to remove these men at the top. But how could they do that when no one knew what most of these men looked like? Of course, some people did know what they looked like. The, the high-ups in the American military did, and every soldier knew what Saddam Hussein looked like. His face was everywhere. But how do you get soldiers on the ground to memorise the faces of his entire network? Well, the answer is mere exposure. Just get soldiers to look at these people every single day. 
Sounds simple, right? But here's the real creative solution. They didn't want to force soldiers to do this. It was no good giving them a book or pamphlet. No one would take that out to look at it. As the man given the task, Lieutenant Han's mum said, we didn't want to make another bullshit intelligence product that no one was ever going to read. As Trot puts it, he knew that any publication would be used as toilet paper. In total, there were around 50 enemy faces that needed to be studied and memorised. How do you get ordinary GIs to care enough to study 50 faces? Well, you tweak the things that the soldiers already look at. And soldiers spend a lot of time looking at playing cards. 2003 was the age when you played with playing cards, not phones, during your downtime. So the army created a new deck of cards, and the 52 most important members of the Iraqi regime, well, they each got their photo on a card. Starting with the most important and working down, so Saddam himself, he was the ace of clubs. His sons, who organised mass murder, they were the other aces in the pack. Then the generals, and then the leaders of government, down to the heads of surveillance and the heads of torture. Remembering their names, of course that wouldn't be easy, but luckily they didn't need names. They already had a shared code name for each individual. They wouldn't say they've just found Ali Hassan, they'd say they found the King of Spades. By the time the war was finished, ordinary soldiers have found most of the people pictured on those cards. 13 were dead, 29 were in custody, 4 were captured and released, and just 6 were never caught. All, at least partly, due to the mere exposure effect. If you understand the mere exposure effect, you'll know that memorability comes with repetition. And this repetition of exposure will, in some cases, boost likability. For advertisers, this explains why a crap Super Bowl ad still drives sales. For Barnum, it explains why lying about white elephants didn't harm his popularity. For politicians, it explains why controversy captures attention. And for Iraqi soldiers, it explains how thousands of GIs were able to memorise the faces of 52 Iraqis. But be wary, because giving attention to something you're against won't always extinguish the issue, Sometimes it'll just add fuel to the fire. All right, folks, that is all for today. Hope you enjoyed today's show. I had good fun putting it together. It's helped me understand why so many people that I disagree with seem to have more notoriety than I'd expect. As always, I want to shout out my sources. James Twitchwell's brilliant book, 20 Ads That Shook the World. That walked me through Barnum's past, explained how he created hype. It's a really good book, and I've left a link to it in the show notes, so go pick it up if you want to read that. I'd also encourage you to check out Pete Judo's YouTube channel. His video on controversy was fantastic, as are all his videos, so click on the link in the show notes to go and watch him. And finally, Dave Trott's book, Creative Mischief. This is another classic Dave Trott book. It's really worth a read. There's a link to that in the show notes as well. If you're looking for something to listen to after this, I'd recommend you go and listen to an episode I did a while back on Julius Caesar. It explains how Caesar used psychological principles to influence an entire empire and rise to power. If you liked today's show, I think you'll really like that one. So go and search for Nudge Julius Caesar wherever you get your podcasts. As always, if you want more nudge tips, more psychology tips, more behavioural science tips, please do go and sign up to my newsletter. You'll get a behavioural science tip every week, plus a reminder when a new episode drops. So just head to nudgepodcast.com, that's nudgepodcast.com, and click newsletter in the menu. And that is all for this week. I'm Phil Agnew, your host. You'll find me on Twitter and LinkedIn, sharing, hopefully, the right amount of controversial opinions. So reach out to me on there if you want to get in touch. And I will see you all next Monday for another episode of Nudge.
Tschüss.